Good morning, and we are back in Revelation. And we are in the shortest chapter of Revelation. Therefore, in my hubris, I thought maybe I could do it in a week, but no, not going to happen. So we're going to march through and see where we end up, and then we'll pick it up, Lord willing, next week if he blesses us with meeting again. And if it takes three, then we'll do three, and that's okay. I've learned to be okay with things like that, or at least getting better at learning to be okay. But this morning we're going to look at Revelation 15, and again we find ourselves in a transition period, okay? And we see a lot of these in Revelation, and there's a lot of great depth. There's a lot of great depth that we find here. And this morning's message is entitled, A Prism of Judgment. How many of us have ever seen a prism before? Okay. How many of us know what a prism can do? Yeah, what does it do? It reflects light, right? And in that refraction of light, you take light that is clear, pass it through a prism, and you end up seeing multicolors, right? And a prism is also multifaceted. It's not just one surface. It's multiple surfaces. Kind of similar to a diamond, right? Or to any cut gem. But what it does is it allows us to take what is already there and it shows us what's there so we can visually see it. Because light is always around us. We are all surrounded by light, but we don't see the full color spectrum of light. There's a lot of light and color that we can't physically see without the aid of some instrumentation, uh, cameras, uh, videos, all kinds of different stuff. Spectrometers, there's all kinds of things. But this morning, we're going to use that same premise and that same idea to look at the judgment of God and to see many facets to that. Because God's judgment is always multifaceted. Why? Because God is multifaceted. God's character is built around his holiness, and out of that comes so many different things. So this morning, and however many weeks it takes, we're going to start looking at that when it comes to his judgment. Because we're in that transition time in Revelation where we're moving into the final bold judgments. And those are coming starting in chapter 16, which is next. But again, this being the shortest chapter, it is packed full of richness. There's so much here. Like I said, I can make two or three messages out of this, and that's probably what it'll end up being. My daughter told me this morning I could spend two weeks just on a couple verses. So we'll see what happens. But this morning, God's judgment is nothing new. God's wrath is not new. It is a constant theme throughout all of history, from Adam until the final playing out of the bowl judgments. There is a constant theme in Scripture of God's judgment and God's wrath, and rightly so. Because of the sin of Adam, all man endures sin, right? That's what the book of Romans tells us, also the book of Hebrews But many things people fear, right? Look around you and see how many different aspects of life that people fear. They fear bad politics. They fear war. They fear disease. They fear the political climate. They fear financial burden. They fear financial collapse. There are so many things that people fear, and yet they refuse to fear God whom they should. That is the greatest fear that they should have. Because in the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
In the fear of God, we understand our worthlessness outside of Christ. We see that we have a sin problem. Why? Because the fear of God starts with His holiness. And we know that we can never attain to the holiness of God. If we could, what's the need of Christ? If we could, what was the need of Calvary? If we could, what is the need of anything in all of Scripture? But because we understand the basic truth that we ought to fear God, we love Him. And we are grateful for what He has done. But what people should fear is God's wrath and judgment that has been promised for those who continue to either condemn, ignore, or justify away their sin. People who continue to turn aside and against Christ, who willfully neglect the truth of Scripture, who willfully neglect the holiness of God. And it is in that that mankind will find his judgment. He will find the truth of God's wrath and will be terrified when it is too late. We have seen as we've marched through Revelation that God's judgments are continuing to build against unrighteousness. God's judgments are continuing to grow in their cataclysmic effect upon earth and upon man. And as we are getting ready to move into this time of these seven great, quick, bold judgments... We are going to see that mankind is going to scorn the mercy and grace of God one time too many. We neglect truth and we wonder why God judges. We sin willfully and neglect the truth of God's holiness and we wonder why his wrath comes about. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 10. And I'm going to read that for you quickly this morning. Matthew 10 and verse 28. Jesus says this. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus made it very clear in his day that the wrath of God is coming to judge those who do not fear God. Now, does that mean we are to walk around in terror? No. Because we know that under the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, we do not need to fear judgment. Now, our deeds will be judged, but we will not stand condemned. Our deeds will be judged to show how we built, whether with gold, silver, or precious jewels, or with wood, hay, and stubble. Does the gospel we preach hold up to the fire of who God is and what he says his word is? Do we preach the true gospel or a watered-down one? Do we preach a true gospel Or do we preach man's theories and traditions? Because we ought to all hold on to the truth with a tenacious and voracious hold because it's easy to slip into falsehood. It is easy to slip in and preach opinion. It is easy to slip into the idea of tradition trumps scripture. We have a great portrayal of that. Jesus always went after the Pharisees for those very reasons. They added to God's word. They put man's tradition above the law and heart of God. And in that, it breeds pride. So we ought to stay away from that. In the book of Psalm, Psalm number 7 particularly, Psalm 7 and verse 11 has this to say, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Meaning God is angry at the wicked every day. If that doesn't impact your mind, what's going to? If God is angry at the wicked every day, it just 
begs the question of what's going to happen to the wicked, right? And all of us at one time or another were under that indignation. And it's only because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we no longer stand there. It is only because of the grace and mercy that was manifested at the cross that we don't stand and sit under judgment. And yet it's also our job to make that known to people who walk in ignorance, to people who defy a holy God, a people who shake their fist in his face, that discount the blessings that they receive on a daily basis, to breathe air, to have food, clothing, shelter, are all great blessings of God that he pours out on all of mankind. Even the wicked flourish, right? The scripture tells us that, but it also says they flourish for a season. That in the end, they will be judged for their sin and their neglect of a holy God. Hebrews is a great Old Testament, New Testament book. You guys have heard me say that a hundred times, and I'll always say it because I enjoy it. But Hebrews 10 and verse 31 tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author of Hebrews is trying to shake up the people to understand that they must do with Christ. They have everything to do with Christ because he is our great high priest, because he fulfilled the law of God in the Old Testament. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He was the epitome of perfection. He was the image of the living God. And we all must have to do with him. The scriptures are never quiet when it comes to God's coming and, his, and the day of the Lord judgment. Scripture is filled with these. And we're going to look at a few of them because it's important to lay that foundation as we get in and move in in chapter 15 into the judgments of God is why are they there? Well, because God promised that they would be there. It's part of God's plan that they be there. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. God promised judgment. And he promised that there would be a day where his judgment would be meted out and be finished. And that's the glory of the word this morning. Is that in all of this, God's wrath will be satisfied. It will be finished and complete. And those are some great truths. But he, uh, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their face is aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. God promised judgment, and it is terrifying. People do not fear rightly what they ought. To be scared of the political climate or financial burdens is foolishness, it is temporary, it is insignificant. It is terrifying to look at the wrath of God, and rightly so, because it's in perfect, pure righteousness and holiness. It is not just God gets angry as we get angry over fickle things. If he did, none of us would be here. Turn in your Bibles to Joel, chapter 1. It's a small little book. 
right after the book of Hosea. Joel chapter 1 and verse 15. The prophet Joel says this, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. The prophets continue to speak to the surety of God's plan. God will bring about his great day of wrath. Turn to Ezekiel. Back just a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 30. Prophet Ezekiel had a difficult life. And it was full of judgment. But in Ezekiel chapter 30 and verse 3 he says this. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. God promised that his judgment and his final day of judgment will not just be against all of Israel, but all nations. Because all nations have a responsibility of what they do with God. All nations have a responsibility equally in his eyes of what they do with Christ. The plan of God from the beginning was that Christ would come for all nations. That's when he told Abraham, in your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. It wasn't just Israel. It was all nations were called to repentance in Christ. All nations were called to come and worship a holy God. God did not exclude the Gentiles from salvation, but included them. Why? Because we are all made in the image of God. And God's plan has always been salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. But that means we have something to do with it, right? Turn over to the book of Amos. This is right after Joel. The book of Amos. Amos was a country bumpkin preacher. I really like him. A simple man. Reminds me a lot of myself. Just a simple country man. But in Amos chapter 4, verse 12. Amos 4, verse 12. Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. When you read words like that, pause. God's trying to get something across. When he says, prepare to meet your God, do you know what happens when you meet God? Yes, you die. But you are exposed. If you are exposed in the holiness of God, it is not comfortable. That's the problem with today's church is it gets comfortable with God because we put him in a box that excludes holiness. We put him in a box that makes him comfortable to pick up, take off the shelf, look at him. Okay, yep, that works for me and put it back. That is not how God is. God is not comfortable. That's why it says that no man can see God's face and live. Because his holiness is all consuming of sin and wickedness. All sin is equal in God's eyes. It is man that puts levels of sin, right? Man's like, well, this is a little white lie. It's not a big deal. No, God calls a lie a lie. And God hates lies. You know, it's mentioned twice in the abominations that he lists in Proverbs chapter 6. Your tongue. James talks about the wickedness of the tongue. How it opposes with it you praise God and with it you curse man. Blessing and cursing should not come out of the same spring. Bitter and salt, fresh and clean. And we use both. And we should not. But one of the scariest portrayals of the day of the Lord is in the book of Zephaniah. Turn to Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah is just a little book. It's a great book. It's full and rich. But if you need to know, it's 
comes after Habakkuk. I like that book. It's a great name, Habakkuk. But Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, God vividly portrays his day of the Lord when his wrath will come. Zephaniah 1, verse 14, near is the great... Have you guys noticed that word near is in like every verse we've read now? Do you know what that means? It goes back to the great spiritual truth that man's life is a vapor. It is short. Take your, take your 80 years, if by great strength, and measure that against eternity. Do you know you won't even see it? And that's what God says it is. And yet in our finite minds, we are like, 80 years is a long time. But it's not. It is so quick. It is so short. And we ought to use all of that to great advantage. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen the day of the Lord. In it the warrior will cry out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. On the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Is that not vivid imagery that we should be fearful of. Do you realize how many people walk around without knowing that truth? Without even caring or giving it a second thought. Life is about my pleasure. Life is about what pleases me most. Life is about me, 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 I, I, I. Never once in scripture do we find that. Never once in scripture do we see that life is not about glorifying God in all things in praising his name, in doing homage. Do you know that in America, the average sermon is 15 minutes or less? I'm not going to apologize for preaching long, by the way. But do you realize that the worship of God should be focused centrally around the preaching of his word? Do you know that the days of old, when the church was first started, they preached for hours. They preached into the night. And nobody complained. They preached the word of God because it was of the utmost importance, not the falling back to, I've got to hear a little bit of truth so I can get through my week. Not so that I can hear a little bit of truth so I can feel okay about myself. Not so I can hear some great soliloquy or poem or joke or anything to make me feel good. It is to get down to the basic holiness of God and the glory of his name. That is worship. The worship of God, yes, songs are great. Why? Because they preach the truth of what Colossians and Ephesians says, is it teaches us good theology. Songs are easy to memorize, right? Listen to our children. How many times can they sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs? Because they're easy to remember. Why do you think the Psalms were written as songs? Because they were easy to remember. And yet we don't want to take time to memorize the word of God. We don't want to take time to sit under the preaching of God's word. To become uncomfortable at times. 
Because you will get comfortable if you get into the meat of God's word. Because all of us fall short of God's glory. All of us sin. Even us saved saints sin. Get that. We're not perfect. And yet we continue to move towards the perfection of Christ. We continue to seek to move in maturity towards Christ. Towards a mature man. Complete. And one day we will have the great blessing and benefit of worshiping God without the hindrance of our sin and our flesh. Amen? That is the great day that we look to. But did God reveal this great wisdom back in the days of old? Turn to the book of Job. Job was one of the earliest of men. In Job chapter 21. Y'all know I like the book of Job, and I'm going to use it a lot in this message series. But Job 21. Job 21 and verse 30. For the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of fury. Even Job understood the wisdom that God will do away with sin. And God will judge the wicked in his righteousness. The wicked are reserved for the day of the Lord's wrath. Job understood that. But what does it look like? And I'm not talking about the nitty-gritty details of God's judgment. But what does God's judgment look like? There are four great characteristics of God's judgment, okay? And we're going to look at those. So we're going to start to pick apart this little prism of judgment. First off, God's judgment, he comes with judgments that are temporary. We're going to look at three temporary judgments, types of judgments. And then we're going to look at one that's not temporary. First off, the sowing and reaping of God's judgment. Okay, There is basic biblical principles that what you sow is what you will reap. And it comes true with God's judgment. Turn, uh, well, you're in the book of Job. Go to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4 and verse 8. Now, this is one great truth that one of Job's friends actually got right. But that is in the wrong context, because they were accusing Job of sin. But Job chapter 4 and verse 8. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. It is a great biblical truth, sowing and reaping. Our memory verse. Hey, we're going to apply that already, right? Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground. That word fallow, we were having a little discussion as guys this morning about that word fallow. It's that brick hard, and you guys in Claybanks Township understand this, that brick hard ground that's never been worked. God is equating our hearts and our lives with fallow ground. And he tells us to break it up. Why? So that we can do what he commanded us first. To sow in accordance with with a view to righteousness in accordance with kindness. That is how we are to sow. If not, God says he will bring judgment. If we sow wickedness, we will reap judgment. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to tie Old Testament and New Testament together. I like to do that because there's fluidity between the scripture. But in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows... This he will also reap. For if he sows to his own flesh, from his flesh he will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not quiet that out of man's sowing he will reap either blessing or judgment. 
So, that's one type of judgment of God. The second type is cataclysmic judgment. So, Genesis 6, right? The flood. God used a great cataclysm to destroy and judge the wicked. Save Noah and his family. Can we think of another one? That was a little bit not universal, but more stationary, geological. Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. God enacted judgments, cataclysmic judgments, right? There is no trace of Sodom and Gomorrah besides the ruins and devastation that is left there. They actually can find hail and brimstone, great levels of sulfur. It's all there. I actually watched a documentary one time. It was an absolutely amazing to watch what they can find. But yeah, cataclysmic judgment. So we have sowing and reaping and cataclysmic judgment. The third type, and one of the most scary in my opinion, is God's judgment of abandonment. Now Paul in Romans 1 says it three times, that God abandoned them or gave them over to their sin. Three times just in chapter 1. Well, is that true with the rest of the scripture? Yes. In Hosea chapter 4 and verse 17, he says, Ephraim is joined himself to idols, therefore leave him alone. Let him sit in his sin. Do you know the whole book of Hosea is dealing with the sin of idol worship in Ephraim? Yeah. God was furious because they turned their back on God and they sought idols. They sought to worship gods they didn't know. Gods whom their fathers did not know. But yeah, so we see these three temporary judgments of God. They're temporal, right? We've seen that over the course of Israel's history. The whole Old Testament is all about the temporal judgments of God on the nation of Israel. But there is a fourth type of judgment, and that's the eschatological wrath or the eternal wrath of God. And that is coming. We're not there yet. But we're getting there in our, in, our, in our scripture here. We're getting there in the book of Revelation. But this is the judgment of God that does not have end. Now, here in chapter 15, it says this is the end of God's wrath. The last of God's wrath being poured out on man. But man and Satan and his angels will endure an eternal wrath in the judgment of hell. It is a real place. I have heard preachers stand up and say that hell is a temporary place. It is unbiblical. It's unfounded in the scripture. God's wrath is eternal. That's why it took an eternal being to satisfy the wrath of God. Do you realize that Christ endured the eternal fury of God on the cross? That's what our sin calls for. It calls for an eternal punishment because we have sinned against an eternal God. And yet Christ took that on our behalf. And therefore we no longer need to be accountable for an eternal punishment. Because the blood of Christ satisfied. How do we know it's satisfied? Because he raised from the dead three days later and sat down at the right hand of God. Praise God for that. So we have these three types of judgments, sowing and reaping, cataclysmic, abandonment, and the eternal wrath of God. And it's the eternal wrath of God that we're going to focus on in chapter 15. But from Eden until the coming of these bold judgments, there is a great truth to the double-sided coin of judgment and God's wrath. 
So on one side of the coin, you have God's wrath that we're discussing, right? God's coming judgment and God's judgments that are enacted now. But on the other side of that coin, you have the great truth that God is in the business of saving man from God's wrath. God's wrath is promised, but he's also seeking to pull man out of his wrath. That's why there's salvation. If God was not in the business of seeking to pull man away from his wrath, we wouldn't have Christ. We wouldn't have salvation. We would all be judged, and justly so. But God is in the business of pulling people and snatching people out of the fire. You know, that's what he tells us in the great benediction in Jude, right? Snatch people out of the fire. But hate the garments polluted by the flesh. It's the great duality of God that's a beautiful picture. Because all of God's character is tied together perfectly. God is a God of wrath and judgment. But he's also a God of grace and mercy. He's a loving God, and yet he's holy. And it's the beauties of the truth of God's character that we see here being worshipped. Because God is in the business of saving sinners. And out of this, out of these great judgments that we are looking at in the tribulation, what do we find? In Revelation 7 and verse 9, we see the greatest harvesting of souls. Right? All the souls that are before the Lord worshiping him in chapter 7. God brings about a great harvest of righteousness through his judgments. Through the preaching of his word. So does God need to justify his wrath and his judgment? No. No, he does not. But it's interesting because in our section here in Revelation, he gives us three really good reasons of why. And we're going to look at those, and we're going to move through those. But Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. Go ahead and turn there quickly with me this morning. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. It gives us that premise of why God does not need to justify his wrath. And it says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God does not need to justify it because it's always right. He is a God of justice. Well, we look at it, well... If sinners aren't being condemned to hell, how is God still acting in justice? Because he meted out justice on the cross. Our justification was satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation. Justification. It's a great biblical theological truth that you need to study and wrap your mind around. And then sanctification and glorification. Right? The Asians. Put them in a group. They're great to study. Yet we can see three main reasons for his wrath and glimpse the beauty of the many facets of God's judgment. And we're going to start looking at those this morning. So let's take a minute and let's uh, let's pray. Then we're going to read through Revelation 15 and then we're going to jump in, right? Not like we haven't jumped in already, but we're going to jump in some more. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and this day where we can come before you and humble ourselves and humble our hearts and our minds before you. For great and marvelous are you, O Lord. Holy and true are you. Righteous and altogether holy. Lord, it's in our imperfection that we come before you this morning. 
it's in our feeble understanding of the enormity of your word and trying to piece together and put together the perfect pictures you have laid out for us, we ask for your wisdom, that your spirit would lead us and guide us through your word, that we would sow with a view to righteousness. Father, we just ask that you will continue to break up the fallow ground of our hearts, that we would not be ignorant to it, but that, Lord, we would see it and that we would repent, that we would turn from it, and that we would run to Christ. Father, help us in this time to grow in our admiration for what Christ has done, but also grow in our understanding and in our desire to share the truth of the gospel. Father, there are many who walk in ignorance willfully. Lord, help us to be faithful sirens of the truth, that your judgment has been promised and is coming in its full and entirety, but that also on the other side of that coin, you are willing to snatch sinners away from your wrath, that we can enjoy worship and praise and adoration, that one day we may see your face and not perish. Father, we thank you for your word and ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 15. Go ahead and open there if you're not there yet. I know I've been having you flip around already. But go ahead, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. Again, we're going to get through what we can today and continue next week, Lord willing, if we're still here. If God comes back, praise the Lord, then I don't need to go any farther. (laughs) Revelation 15. And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after these things I looked, And the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Again, we find ourselves here at a transition time in the scripture. From chapter 14 and 13 preceding to chapter 16 and all the way through to chapter 19, we see a transition time here. A scene in heaven is once again presented to us. Now we've seen these before. When we had the seal judgments and we had the trumpet judgments, we had a scene in heaven that gave a vision. And it's this vision that John starts with yet again. And this is an anticipation of the coming of the bold judgments. 
that were going to be the final and complete, right? And the neat thing that we need to understand is that word, they are the final, means that God has just justified all the judgments beforehand, saying that those judgments were from him. Because there are preachers out there that say that the seven bold judgments are the only judgments that were actually from God. Now, that's a heretical statement to make. Because God justifies his seal and his trumpet judgments. But that word final also puts us in chronological order. The seal judgments and the trumpet judgments come chronologically before the bold judgments. So we have seal judgments in chapter 4 and 5 and the trumpet judgments in chapter 8. And God gives a scene for us to give us a perspective. Because God always sets context for what he's doing in the scriptures. And that's a great blessing for us. Because if God didn't set the context, how do we know we got it right? God is not a God of chaos, but a God of order. And God helps us get that order if we but just sit under his word and study it. That's what we're going to do this morning. But in verse 1, we see, And then I saw another sign in heaven. Well, this is the third sign in heaven that John has seen. Do you guys remember the first? It was in chapter 11. No, chapter 12, sorry. Chapter 12, verse 1, where he saw a sign in heaven of the woman, right? I'm going to read it for you since we've got a little blank look. So, chapter 12, verse 1, A great sign appeared in heaven. This is the first. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. That was the great, the first great sign in heaven. And it's the woman Israel and the coming of the Christ child. And then the second sign is right following after it in verse 3. And then I saw another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. So speaking of Satan. So we have three great signs in heaven. The first is Israel, the second is Satan, and the third here for us is what? Well, it's seven angels who have seven plagues. So this is the next great sign. That word plague is, a, is an interesting word. It doesn't mean like a disease or a pandemic, which we're getting familiar with that word, aren't we? Yeah. Well, it's not that. That word plague means a mortal wound. It also means a blow, a great blow. So this is picturing the fact that these plagues, these last seven bold judgments, are great blows. They're great mortal wounds that God strikes against the earth and strikes against mankind. An unrepentant mankind, may I preface it with that. But this is the word that he also used to describe the fatal wound that the beast had that was supposedly healed. It's that same word. But these are seven plagues or seven great blows or seven fatal wounds that God inflicts in his judgment. And it portrays these bold judgments, again, not as epidemics or diseases, but as great deadly blows that he is carrying out in the final fury of his wrath. These are the worst and the last. The bold judgments are no joke. They're terrifying in the scope and the enormity of God's wrath and his judgment. These are the last, and they show us that all of God's other judgments preceding were building up to this moment. 
because God has got an order. But these also come again in chronological sequence after the seal and the trumpet judgments. God's wrath will be completed. You know what's great about that? Two things. One, that God is finally judging the earth in righteousness, right? That is what saints throughout the ages have prayed for. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs on the altar. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you withhold from avenging our blood and judging the earth, right? And that's what we're starting to see, the culmination of that answer to prayer. But the other great thing is it being the last means we don't have to look forward to an eternity of God's judgment. We don't have to look forward to an eternity of God's wrath, but that we can enjoy God without the hindrance, one, of sin, which is what brings about God's wrath, but two, our flesh that carries it out. The Apostle Paul said it over and over, right? In my spirit I desire to do this, and I know I should do this, but I don't. And in my flesh I know I shouldn't do this, but I do do it. Wretched man that I am, right? And it's that great duality of our personality, right? In our flesh, we are weak. But in the spirit of Christ, we are strong. And we need to rest in our weakness so that the strength of Christ can be made manifest in our lives. It's in our hubris or in our pride that we lift up our hand and say, I got this, I can do it, I'm okay. We walk often in our own foolishness to our own hurt. But being the last, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. That is a great, beautiful phrase in the midst of God's judgment. God will finish what he started. God will bring an end to the reign of sin. God will bring an end to the suffering that we bear in our flesh because of sin and because of its outcome. The scriptures are very clear. Paul in Romans says, all creation groans for the sons of God to be revealed. And it will come about. But we have a time here yet that we need to wait. But we have that promise. This is a looking forward in Revelation to the completing of God's wrath and the completing of his work. We're going to look at a couple of scriptures behind to show us that Revelation has been looking forward to this moment of the seven bowl judgments. Back in chapter 6 and verse 17, we have this. Chapter 6 and verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The great day of God and the Lamb's wrath. They were looking forward to that day is coming. And they were terrified, right? They asked for the rocks and the hills to be fall down and to cover us up and to hide us. They were looking forward because it's coming. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 14. It is the third woe that the angel pronounced. Remember he pronounced three woes? And then he said, behold, the third is coming. This is the third woe, the seven bold judgments. And then just down in chapter 11 and verse 18. It is the time of destruction. That is what God is saying, that all of those who will be great and small, rich, poor, all of them will be destroyed. It's a looking ahead to these judgments, to the final wrath of God. In chapter 14, in verse 10, chapter 14 and verse 10, is he will drink the the wrath and the cup of the wine of God's wrath, right? This is the coming of God's unmixed wine of his wrath. He's not going to withhold his wrath any longer. He's not going to lessen the blow, which is the understanding of that word 
plague, right? It's that fatal wound, that deathly blow that's coming. And in, chapter, in verses 14 through 16, it's the final reaping of the earth. And then in verses 17 through 20, it is the final trampling of the grapes of the great winepress of God's wrath. This is what has all been pointing us forward to the final wrath of God to come. All of this judgment has been building to this point to, one, convict the world of sin and to show them that they are wrong. But we know that mankind has a hard heart. We know that man is stubborn and stiff-necked. We know that man will refuse the grace and mercy of God. So there will be many people who this wrath will be poured out upon. That word wrath is a Greek word thumos, which means a great passionate rage and an outburst of anger. That ought to be terrifying for those who are outside of Christ. Because God's wrath is terrifying. So often we talk about, especially during the Christmas season, we talk about the babe in the manger. And we forget that's not who's coming back. Christ is not coming back as an innocent child, as a babe in the manger. But he's coming back, as we read, to trample the winepress of the great wrath of God. He's coming back as a victorious warrior, ready to wage war against the ungodly ready to enact the vengeance of God, ready to enact his full and complete wrath on the unrepentant. That's who's coming again, the warrior whose robes are clean and bright yet dipped in blood. It is this Christ who is coming for his second coming. It is not the babe in the manger. It is not a gentle Christ. This is what God is bringing about. Turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3, would you? Please. Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal or my jealousy. Our God is a consuming fire. Do you know that's actually in the scripture too? Hebrews. God has to do with man and man will answer for either his faith or his lack thereof second peter 3 9 says that god is patient not wanting any to perish and while that is true yet those who continue to reject the love the grace and the mercy of christ will find that that will run out yes God desires all men to come to a saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we know that God has also given man the free will to reject that. But God will not hold man any less accountable for his choice. 
It is a great and a terrifying truth that our world vastly and grossly around us ignores. We continue to see sin celebrated. We continue to see gross immorality heralded as this is right and natural and normal. That good is called evil and evil is called good. We are seeing this in our day more and more. And behold, the terrible wrath of God is coming. Do you know how many of the preachers of old, they were preachers of fire and brimstone, right? There's a lot of good ones back in the day. They could shake a person up pretty easy. And yet we've gotten complacent. We've gotten complacent, and God has got to love. We don't need to worry about that. We don't need to worry about it because God is a God of love and would never send anybody to hell. How many times have we all heard that? Yeah. Do you know that is a sickening twisting of the character of God? It's an abomination. It's making God a liar. It's making God unholy. And do we stand upon the truth of God's word and refute that? Because God said he will judge sin and judge it in righteousness and in the holiness of his anger. God has guaranteed it. God has said it is going to happen. We need to herald the truth instead of hiding behind our fear. Our fear of rejection, our fear of preaching the gospel, our fear of being martyred or persecuted. Do you know that Christ said, blessed are you when people persecute you, when people revile you for my name's sake? How many of us want blessing? Most of us. Yeah, we do, right? And yet we shy away from the great blessings that God has for us because we're fearful of pain. We're fearful of being labeled an outcast. We're fearful of the ramifications of people being angry with us. Why? Do you know the book of Colossians is a great book to show you that in Christ, that is our path. The book of Philippians was written to a church that was persecuted heavily for the sake of Christ. It got quiet all of a sudden. Air turned off. And yet we shy away from it. Man likes comfort, does he not? Yeah. Is it necessarily wrong? No. Is it wrong when we neglect our duties to Christ? Absolutely. We are not to put our comforts first. We're to put Christ first. And if that means getting out of our comfort, if that means living a hard life, so be it. Because you know it's temporary. Again, we go back to that understanding that life is short. It is a tiny, minuscule speck that isn't even hardly on the scope of eternity. And yet God has focused everything in this tiny little moment. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with the short time that we have? Do you know how many conversations I've had with people talking about the coming of the tribulation? How many people think it will happen in our lifetime? Now, yes, there are many people that have thought it would happen in their lifetime. But there's not a whole lot left in God's word that has to be finished. We have moved through a lot of prophecy that has been fulfilled. We're marching inevitably towards the time of Christ's return. 
I, for one, I look forward to the day when the clouds roll back and he calls me home. I'm tired and weary of sin that I see, of the heartbreak of watching lives ruined by sin. We see it on a daily basis. We see it multiple times a day. It gets old and wearisome. And yet, in the words of Paul, for us to remain is for the betterment of others. It's for their encouragement. Are we doing that or are we self-focused? Ooh, wow, it's going quick. <laughs> so let's look, we're going to look at our first point this morning. What do you mean what? You're shaking your head. God has blessed us with richness in his word. And I'm going to enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy it with me. <laughs> As long as God puts me on this earth, I'm going to continue to preach through his word, no matter how long it takes. But the great thing about God's word is it's inexhaustible. You know, that's a great truth of a long-winded preacher, right? It's inexhaustible. You can sit here and talk about God's word forever, and it'll never get old, and you'll always learn. Unless you get prideful and say, I have nothing left to learn. But let's look at our first point. And our first point that God gives us out of the three reasons of why his wrath is coming is one, for vengeance. Do we know that God is a God of vengeance? It's very stated clearly throughout all of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30. Let's just turn there. I'm just going gonna, gonna to take my time. Y'all say sometimes I skip too much, so let's, let's just sit. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30. Hebrews 10 and verse 30. For we know him, speaking of God, who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Who is the Lord's people? Not just those who are saints. Not just those who are called Israel, but all who have been made in the image of God. For we are his workmanship. Everybody is God's. Therefore, everybody falls under vengeance. Everybody falls under the judgment of God. It just shows us what side do you want to be on. The side that has been justified through faith in Jesus Christ or the side that will endure the terrifying wrath of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Again, I like the fluidity of Scripture. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Again, the seriousness of the fact that time is short, and the seriousness that all will sit under the vengeance of God. For what? For those who do harm to God's people and do harm to his name. God is very clear about that. 2 Samuel, chapter 22. 2 Samuel, chapter 22. Verse 48. 
2 Samuel 22, verse 48. The God who executes vengeance for me and brings down peoples under me. That was David speaking of the greatness of God and bringing down the unholy nations around Israel. Bringing them into subjection. There's also in Nahum, God says that I am a God of vengeance. But how do we know this? Verse 2 in Revelation 15. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on that sea of glass, holding harps to God. God cares about his people. God will enact vengeance upon those who harm God's people. God has done that throughout all of history. God not just used Babylon to judge, but he also judged Babylon. And all the nations of the earth that have come forth in the judgment of God from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Rome, God will judge those who are accountable to him. But again, this is not an actual ocean. We've seen many examples of seas of like glass in chapter 4 and verse 6 in Revelation, before the throne of God, right? Chapter 4 and verse 6. My fingers can get me there. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So in Revelation, we are given this beautiful picture of before the throne of God, there is something like a sea of glass, right? Well, what about in the Old Testament? Go to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. In chapter 24 and verse 10, this is where Aaron and Moses went up with the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. And then in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. Ezekiel, chapter 1. Verse 22. Now over their heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. So this picture of serene beauty, and yet Revelation 15 gives us one more detail. It says that this sea of glass was mixed with fire. And we know that God has used the picture of fire as a picture of judgment. So as these saints and the tribulation saints, those who have come out of the tribulations victorious, they are standing on this sea of glass mixed with fire. They are standing in a spot before God, praising and worshiping Him because God's judgment is coming. God is ready to enact his final judgment and his wrath. Hebrews 12 and verse 29 says this, For our God is a consuming fire. Again, the righteous and holy judgment of God is a consuming fire. And this is the scene that John is painting for us here, that those who have been victorious have been victorious over the beast. His image and the number of his name. Now that John is pointing to many facets of that. First, 
We look at the beast, right? And he was given authority to wage war against the saints and to overcome them. He was given to defeat the people of God for a time. But also they were victorious over his image and the number of his name pointing to what? The false prophet. The false prophet who sets up an image and tells the world to worship this image or be put to death. They were victorious over idol worship. Do you know that's important? Not only that, but they were victorious over persecution, over starvation. Why? Because the false prophet set up an institute that unless you receive the mark of the beast, you get to buy and sell nothing. Well, if you can't buy and sell, how do you eat? A lot of the earth at this time has now been ravaged by the plagues that God has sent upon it and his judgments. There is not much there, but God knows how to provide for his people. But these who have ignored the beast, who have discarded his threats of death, who have discarded starvation and persecution as nothing compared to holding on to the truth of God, holding on to the truth of their salvation, that in Christ they are victorious. They have victory in Christ. And in that victory, God paints a great picture here. It says that they are holding harps of God. Do you know harps have been used not only in the book of Revelation, but throughout all of Scripture as an indication of worship, as a time for people to sing praises to God? What did David use when Saul was irritated, as Saul was irritated by his spirit? A harp, right? To soothe him, to settle his spirit. But harps have been associated with worship. Chapter 5 and verse 8 in Revelation, chapter 14 and verse 2. It is a rejoicing over God's answering the prayers of the martyrs in verse 6, uh, in chapter 6. How long, O God, holy and true, before you enact vengeance upon the earth for our blood? This answer is coming to fruition. And people, the saints that have come out of the tribulation, are worshiping God for that fact. Because God is taking vengeance on behalf of his name and his people. Do you know the book of Nahum actually talks about those who attack God's people as like putting your finger and poking God in the eye. It's very interesting, actually. It's Nahum chapter 1. But yeah, it's like poking God in the eye when you attack his people. God doesn't like it. I don't know many of us that like being poked in the eye. It hurts. But they are worshiping. And their appearance here before God is showing us that God's vengeance on those who mistreat his people is a serious offense. How do we know that? Well, Jesus wasn't quiet about it. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at a few examples. Matthew 18, verses 6 through 10. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You think God takes that seriously? Yeah, let's keep going. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. 
But woe to that man through whom that stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Christ takes stumbling blocks and the poking of his people very seriously. Jesus made that very apparent. Turn over to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, verses 41 through 45. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And here it comes. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he answered, will answer them and say, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Christ takes the misuse and the mistreat of his people seriously. And we ought to do the same. A couple more verses before we close. Romans 12. Now it seems like I'm making a big, a big thing about this, and I am. And there's a reason for it. Romans 12, verse 19. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Again, we are to leave room for God's vengeance because he will take vengeance. So what is our response to that? How do we worship God like these saints are doing? Well, keep going. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is our command. We are not to exact our own vengeance, but we are to leave room for the wrath of God. We are to love with an unconditional love because that's what we have been given. Zechariah, I'm sorry, it was Zechariah 2.8 that equates poking God's eye. Sorry. And then let's finish with Psalm 94. This is a great psalm that pictures exactly what we're talking about. We're going to read Psalm 94, verses 1 through 10, and then verses 21 and 23. Go ahead and turn there. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord... How long shall the wicked exalt? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. 
All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. Skip down to verse 21, please. They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them for their, in their evil. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. God always wins. God always makes clear that he knows how to care for his people. And that is what these saints have clung to. And that is why they find themselves victorious. They are victorious because they have obeyed the word of God. Are we walking in victory? Are we taking heed of our lives that we may worship God victorious? Because we are more than conquerors, Paul tells us. Let us walk together in victory that we may praise and worship God as he deserves in the full entirety of his character, not just in the points that we find comfortable to pick up, not in the character of God that's okay to handle, but in all his aspects. I guess we'll get into verse 3, Lord willing, next week, since I'm already a little ways over. But this morning, we're going to pray, and then we're going to go ahead, and Mark and Samuel, you're going to come up as Karen plays, and we're going to worship God, and we're going to again remember the reason why we're here, why we can be here in God's presence and worship him. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this time that you have given to us to set aside. And Lord, we set aside our own selfishness and our own wants and desires that we may come here and worship you and make great your great name. And Father, as we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is so much easier to come and to enjoy our time here in your presence. Lord, may we worship you rightly and as you deserve. May we take the truth of your word and be faithful and bold to preach the truth that Christ, the Lord Jesus, is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And that is by his blood that we have been cleansed and reconciled to you, that our sin has been washed and purged, and that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it's only because of the Lord Jesus that we can stand approved in your presence. And that is our only plea. Because Jesus Christ died for a sinner like me. Father, as we come to your table this morning, I just pray that you'll prepare our hearts that we would continue to rightly worship you as we take this time to remember what Christ has done. Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.